Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hi everyone, welcome to our panel in the eye of the crypto storm. I definitely would say that Michael's position in the industry is um, sort of like that at this moment. <laughs> um, so why don't we start with your lawsuit, which okay. is probably the biggest news um, about Grayscale. And um, as far as I understand, you filed the lawsuit because you felt that the SEC was not treating your application to turn GBTC into a Bitcoin ETF the same way that it's treated other investment vehicles. I just could imagine from a regulator's perspective, they might say, wow, look at the sheer number of failures in crypto last year. And there's this alleged fraud that's just massive, billions of dollars, plus Terra Luna collapsing. I mean, so many, so many failures. And so they probably think that kind of like extra scrutiny is warranted. So what would your response be to them? Well, so the timeline of our lawsuit and the issue that we're litigating over is a little bit different than the recent collapses in crypto uh, and crypto winter. So, you know, at Grayscale, our flagship fund and our longest running fund is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And it's a product that was always conceived to not only be in the public market, but ultimately to be an ETF. And when it progressed through Grayscale's you know, very regimented life cycle and ultimately filed to become an ETF, we got to the end of a road last summer, June 2022, the SEC denied the application. And they did cite things like you're talking about, fraud, manipulation in the market, not enough surveillance sharing agreements, um, which really only left us with one decision, which wasn't a decision we took lightly, um, and it was to initiate litigation against the SEC. And what's interesting about some of the issues that you just brought up are those are not actually part of the litigation that surrounds GBTC, right? The, the issue and the reason that we filed the litigation is because the SEC has treated Bitcoin-linked products disparately. They've approved quite a few Bitcoin futures-based ETFs and continue to deny spot-based Bitcoin ETFs like GBTC. So as a result of that, when you examine the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act, a regulator like the SEC should be treating two alike issues alike, and in this case, they're not. Um, and that's really the foundation of the argument around our lawsuit. So uh, speaking of being in the eye of the storm, on the other hand, you have a lot of critics in the Bitcoin and crypto community 
Um, there was this whole redeem GBTC campaign. There was also um, the lawsuit against, or by Osprey against Grayscale, and now recently another lawsuit um, from Alameda against Grayscale. Some of the complaints are about exorbitant fees. Uh, you know, obviously at this time, because of the massive discount um, on GPTC compared to the NAV, it's difficult once you get in to get out. Um, and so what would be your response to those critics on that side? Well, a lot of the recent litigation we've seen, I would certainly characterize generally as being misguided. Um, at Grayscale, I think we've continued to pride ourselves on not only being a US-based company, but a company that has continued to make use of existing rules and regulations as it pertains to offering investment products to the investment community. Um, and certainly criticisms of things like fees. Uh, we've you know, publicly committed to lowering fees in an ETF format and happily talking to you again today and still committed to lowering fees on GBTC when it does in fact convert to an ETF. Um, but really for us, we're not getting ourselves distracted by that and really focusing on our litigation and ensuring that we're continuing to progress our product family along this cycle that they, that they follow. Yeah, and something interesting that you said to me on my show was that you're using the money earned from the fees to fund things like this lawsuit, which I'm sure takes massive resources and you have like a very impressive legal team arguing your case there. So speaking of that, there was a hearing for the lawsuit um, back in March. Um, what was your takeaway from that day? Yeah, so what's interesting about the litigation that we're in for GBTC is that the SEC denied our application and the litigation is now challenging that decision to try and reverse that decision. And so we were lucky enough to bring on Don Verrilli, who's the former Solicitor General under Obama, um, to lead our case along with a variety of other uh, external legal advisors. And because we're filing action against a federal regulator, we skipped the district court and went straight to the DC court, um, the DC circuit. And when you do so, there's this one day of oral arguments, which were heard in March. And um, for those of you who have not had a chance to either listen in live or look at the transcript, it's available on our website. We invite you to do so. But I think for us, walking out of the courtroom after oral arguments, it was very clear to us that there was a very constructive and engaged line of questioning that surrounded the case itself. Um, and that we you know, really never deviated as an organization or our legal strategy from these very compelling common sense arguments that we have. And I think those stand true you know, historically during oral arguments and certainly stand true today you know, sitting here talking to you. And what did the judges, like if you were just kind of to read the tea leaves from their questions, what would you say about how they were leaning? Well, what goes into that oral arguments is the filing of various briefs that you know, we file with the court, as well as the SEC, as well as a variety of amicus briefs that get filed by other parties. And so approaching oral arguments, it really does give um, each of the judges, the clerks that work with them, the opportunity to really digest the issues at play and then be able to engage in a really constructive dialogue with the attorneys in person. Um, and so we were really encouraged by the level of engagement that we had that day. And at this point, do you have any indication as to when you might get a decision? I think the, the best estimates that we've been guided are that we could get a decision um, by the end of the third quarter of this year. So we're eagerly okay. anticipating a decision from the courts between now and then. Okay. And at the moment, because it felt like most observers you know, felt that the hearing was kind of going in your favor, if there is a ruling in Grayscale's favor, then what would happen and on what timeline would that happen? 
It's a great question. Um, there isn't a ton of precedent for, you know, cases such as this where there's an APA violation and it actually relates back to a rule change um, such as the one that was contemplated here to amend the listing standards for a national exchange like the New York Stock Exchange to list a Bitcoin spot ETF. Um, and so in the case of a favorable outcome, you know, we would certainly work expeditiously with the SEC uh, to ensure that the conversion happens and uplist the product to the NYSE ARCA as you know, we've intended to do. All right, so switching tacks, you have been in the crypto space for such a long time. And we're kind of in this really interesting moment in the history of crypto because we're just coming off this really momentous year of 2022 and momentous like not in a super positive way. So I'm just curious to hear kind of like how history um, in this industry has looked to you from your perspective uh, managing this product. Yeah, um, I was actually just reflecting this morning. This is my ninth consensus, if you can believe that. Wow. I've been to every single one of them, including the virtual one. Wow. Um, and it's great to be here, you know, once again. You know, I think for me, it's really been the most interesting to have a front row seat and that front row inter interaction with the investment community. Because um, when we began in 2013, crypto, Bitcoin was only something that you were really starting to see traction from a very tech forward, a very kind of venture capital um, style type of investor. A lot of it was born out of Silicon Valley. And what was interesting back then is it actually wasn't coming up for those types of investors in professional settings. It was coming up for them in more personal settings, right? Those that were kind of technology enthusiasts, et cetera. And what I think happened over time and what's been so unique about the adoption of crypto by the investment community is that historically, you see new asset classes, first of all, usually only born you know, once in a generation, right? So we obviously have a lot of conviction around crypto and its unique nature. But more importantly, that when new asset classes or new exposures come along, it's usually institutions and Wall Street you know, entities that are able to get into them and then they figure out ways to package or provide that exposure to a more retail audience. In the case of crypto, the exact opposite happened, right, where crypto actually got into the hands of retail investors far sooner than it did for institutions. And I think for me, it wasn't until probably in 2017 when Bitcoin kind of took out that initial all-time high, you actually saw institutions wake up and say, there's something real here. This isn't a dying fad or a passing fad. Instead, this has some real staying power. Um, and certainly today, when I think about the types of investors that we're able to engage with, you know, it's global in nature, investors of all shapes and sizes. And I think certainly coming out of this crypto winter, which is my and Grayscale's third crypto winter, um, there's never been a stronger held conviction amongst investors that crypto is here to stay. So now let's talk about the other big theme of this moment in time in crypto, which is regulation. There's been a ton of enforcement actions by different regulators, in particular the SEC. We're seeing court tussles back and forth between the industry and, um, and regulators. And you have spent a ton of time in D.C., partly because uh, the different grayscale trusts are SEC reporting companies. So I was curious for your overall take on where the crypto industry is in terms of regulation. It lacks the regulatory clarity this industry and this asset class deserves. Um, but progress is being made. Uh, we are spending a ton of time in D.C., and I think that a lot of folks that were maybe on the sidelines or from 
looking at crypto from outside the ecosystem might have believed that in the wake of FTX and other events that occurred during this crypto winter, that we would have taken a very meaningful step backwards in terms of moving forward with legislation, with policy, with the clarity that we want. And what we've been really encouraged by is the engagement we've had in D.C. So my team and I have been spending time with both sides of the aisle, both chambers. Um, there has never been a more engaged, knowledgeable base um, of politicians and their offices around crypto. And I think there's two interesting items there. Um, number one is when we talk about GBTC in our lawsuit, uh, what resonates is the fact that GBTC becoming an ETF is not an issue that requires new legislation or new policy, right? It's just fitting into existing rules and regulations, and that's really encouraging to a lot of folks who are hoping to progress things forward and maybe even believe that some of the recent turmoil in crypto could have been prevented if we had had spot Bitcoin ETFs like GBTC. Huh. And I think the second item that's coming out of this is that everyone wants to do something. And for a lot of them, they're just trying to figure out where to get started. Do they start on stablecoin legislation? Do they start on regulation of the centralized intermediaries? Do they re-examine the Howey test and crypto commodity versus crypto security? These are the types of conversations that are being had. And what sets crypto apart from a lot of the other issues that are floating around Congress, that it actually has bipartisan support. So with a new Congress, with a new dedicated subcommittee on digital assets in the House, um, I'm confident that things will begin to move forward, um, but the industry needs to engage and our regulators and our policymakers need to engage as well. And so I'm curious about how you just stated it has bipartisan support because um, I would say yes, largely like throughout the years that's been the case, but post FTX, it did feel like it might be turning in the direction of becoming more partisan with um, more Democrats kind of more prominently calling out crypto and then Republicans more prominently being pro-crypto. Have you noticed any change post FTX? And I, I agree with you, it's probably not fully partisan yet, but it looks like it might be trending that way. Well, I do think that, you know, both sides of the aisle recognize that FTX was not a U.S.-based business, you know, was not really meant to set up or have operations for the U.S. or for the U.S. investor, but they do look at some great companies that have been built in the U.S., Grayscale, Circle, Coinbase, folks that are really focused on delivering products and services in a way that is adhering to rules and regulations, um, and they're eager to engage with those types of folks. I think what we can do as an industry is continue to really just educate um, so that when new bills, um, you know, new drafts of bills do start to circulate, new policy begins to, to get drafted, that they're approaching it with a fully informed perspective um, and don't kind of scoff at the opportunity to engage because they're not coming at it fully informed. One other thing that I have noticed, and many other people are discussing it these days, is the status of Ether. And, you know, it seems like the SEC has kind of changed its position. There was kind of a stretch of a few years where it seemed like the message from, you know, heads at the SEC were saying, Ether in its present form is not a security, it's a commodity. And now with Chair Gensler, it seems like there's a different tune. And I was wondering what your experience has been with the two administrations at the SEC. Um, you know, it's certainly been, um, you know, tough to see such a 
large amount of enforcement actions continuing to be taken out against crypto companies, which I think is indicative of the most recent and, and kind of current administration, this regulation by enforcement posture. Um, that being said, we're certainly supportive of bad actors being called out. Those who are you know, deliberately violating existing rules and regulations or laws certainly should have enforcement actions come out against them. But this policy and this attitude of, of kind of acting in that way, um, we're past it, right? As, a, as an organization and you know, many other peers out there, we're all trying to grow and scale our businesses. And so to do so simply by trying not to repeat the mistakes of others that have in fact received enforcement actions, that doesn't exactly foster innovation. That doesn't exactly give companies the wherewithal to grow in a responsible way. Um, and so what we are now seeing is you know, a lot of litigation, a lot of people moving to that third branch of government um, to really get the answers that, that they're seeking, um, not only for their businesses, but for their underlying customers. That's certainly the case of what we're doing at Grayscale. And I think we need to, I think we need to be a little bit patient. Um, we do. But we have to continue to engage. This is a cooperative opportunity between the public and the private sector. So the other thing that's happening is because of all this turmoil in terms of regulation in the U.S. is a lot of companies are moving offshore. And I was curious, you know, how much have you talked with other jurisdictions? Um, what are you seeing that some other jurisdictions are doing that you think U.S. regulators could take lessons from? Yeah, it's, it is a, a, a hot topic of conversation in the crypto community. Um, I think it is a really large missed, would be a missed opportunity for the U.S. not to continue to be a hub of innovation that fosters that type of growth. We are certainly seeing proclamations by other jurisdictions, be it the U.K. coming out saying they want to be a hub of crypto innovation, um, or what we're seeing in some parts of the Middle East or in Southeast Asia, it, it would be a shame to see companies leaving the U.S. to go to other jurisdictions because there they can operate their businesses without fear of some type of retaliation. Um, that being said, you know, we, we discussed this earlier today, we, we do pride ourselves on being an American company and a company that follows U.S. rules and regs. So for, for us at Grayscale, we're committed to being here in the U.S., although our clients and our investors are global in nature. But it would be nice to see some movement from the policy makers and the regulatory community that would give companies a little bit more hope um, that they will get the clarity they need to continue to operate their businesses here. And is there any specific regime in another country or jurisdiction that you feel like could be a good model for what we might adopt here? I think it's too early to say. Um, I think to my earlier comment, there have been a lot of folks who have come out saying that they're ready for that and they're waving companies in. They want job growth, they want tax revenue, they want to be a hub of innovation, they want to be left behind. Um, but it's too early yet to see whether or not those are actually met with or matched off with actual frameworks that companies can use. So I imagine there's probably some either regulators or lawmakers or DC staffers that are going to hear this conversation. If you could send a message to any of those people, what would that be? I think I would say talk, just talk to the crypto community. Um, you know, the idea that going in and speaking to a regulator or going in and speaking to a policymaker somehow um, is something that's gonna result in some kind of punitive action taken against you. Um, I, I think is not something that people should be operating under. Our policymakers and our regulators and our experience have their doors open, they are listening, they are engaging. Um, and I think we in the crypto industry have to remember how fast we're moving, how fast new use cases are being unlocked, how many more investors are coming into the space. 
and as a policymaker, as a regulator, that makes the ability to create policies, to create regulations even tougher. Um, and so it's really incumbent upon us as an industry to continue to engage and continue to talk to those types of parties. So I wrote these questions, and then I heard of a piece of news after. And I know that this uh, concerns your parent company, but I realized we should definitely just touch on this because DCG noted that the terms of the agreement that it had set with the creditors of Genesis, um, apparently there's a group of creditors that have walked away. And I just wondered, because who knows what's going to happen, this deadline of money that DCG owes to Genesis is coming up very soon. If DCG were to go under, how would that impact Rayscale? So we're not party to the agreement or potential agreement that, that you're talking about. And um, even though Grayscale is a wholly owned subsidiary of Digital Currency Group, there is an operational reliance um, on DCG. We're a distinct entity with our own leadership team, budgets, our own you know, regulated entities, et cetera. And so from our perspective, seeing the news just as you did, um, we hope that by bringing that process forward and in front of mediation that a favorable outcome can be reached for you know, everybody that's involved in it. Okay, so at this point, we're gonna you know, be in this sort of like historic moment where we're trying to come out of 2022. There's a ton of different court battles between crypto companies and regulators. So looking forward, like what are you kind of watching for in terms of developments in the, in the industry? Yeah, I think for me, um, one of the things I love to say to audiences like this is that, you know, price is not going to be the best indication of the health of the crypto ecosystem. We saw kind of that consensus bump um, waking up this morning, which is really nice. But that being said, if you really look at the analytics available to you on the underlying technologies themselves, there's a ton of development that's going on. And I think a lot of the use cases that are drawing in investors today are going to look very, very different on a go-forward basis because we're still, um, even though it's my ninth consensus, um, this is still early days for crypto. I would totally agree with you on that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL.